Last year, I had the opportunity to list my Montecito guest house on Airbnb. This was part of a special project that Airbnb spearheaded to build connection and to make the world feel a little less lonely. It was such a pleasure to get to know my Airbnb guests over dinner and share my home with them so that they could rest and recharge on their trip. But typically, the beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Being a host on Airbnb is great for those who travel frequently, have extra space, or own a seasonal home. If you've stayed at an Airbnb, you know the unique experience it offers. And now you can share that same experience with others in addition to earning additional income on the side. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. Don't hold anything too tightly. Just wish for it, want it, let it come from the intention of real truth for you, and then let it go. For me, our soul is like it's unbound, it's limitless, but we will use words to limit ourselves. When people stop believing that somebody's got your back or Superman's coming, we turn to ourselves, and that's where you become empowered. Courageous participation attracts positive things. I'm Gwyneth Paltrow. This is the Goop Podcast, bringing together thought leaders, culture changers, creatives, founders and CEOs, scientists, doctors, healers and seekers, here to start conversations, because simply asking questions and listening has the power to change the way we see the world. Today is no exception. I'll let Elise fill you in on her extraordinary guest. All right, over to Elise. Our guest today is Dr. Michelle Harper, an emergency room physician who has worked as chief resident at Lincoln Hospital in the South Bronx and in the emergency department at the VA Medical Center in Philadelphia. She also just published her stunning memoir, The Beauty and Breaking. Today, we talk about everything she's learned from her patients about healing and, in turn, the ways this informs how she practices medicine. She shares how she manages the emotional strain of being witness to so much suffering and trauma, the ways in which our bodies often have information that our minds don't have access to, and how she sees her commitment to positive change as another form of meditation. Her stories are beautiful, heartbreaking, and incredibly prescient. Dr. Harper, in many ways, redefines what empathetic and compassionate medical care looks like. Justice is more than than help, like doing one good thing for one person one day. It's so much more than that. But it is those moments and the possibility of greater change that rejuvenates me and that makes it possible for me to keep going every day. Okay, let's get to my chat with Dr. Michelle Harper. Thank you for your service. I feel for all of you. And I know that New Jersey, that you guys got hammered. We're having sort of the low, the more protracted, slow burn hammering in Los Angeles. Just can't seem to get our numbers down. So congrats on your book. I thought it was beautiful. What sort of what was the moment? Like, why did you decide to write it? You know, as an emergency room physician grappling with your own sort of history and role as a healer, like what was the the impetus? Mm-hmm. Honestly, I think it's it's just what you said. This role as a healer, I will tell you that what resonates with me more than any specific title, like the title of physician, for example, or 
ER doctor is my mission to heal and to be part of that process. So I deeply enjoy working in the ER and that connection with patients one-on-one with that one particular patient or the role in helping a, a family or community. And then I thought, well, with writing, and I'm new, I'm new to writing in this whole book world, but with writing, of course, there's the chance to engage many people across the country, across the world. And since I'm committed to healing, it seemed to be a natural and appropriate step to take. That was that was really it. Yeah. And it's interesting and in, in watching you sort of grapple with this throughout the memoir, like your keen attraction to trauma, like the trauma that formed your childhood or was the sort of binding of your childhood with your abusive father and then the attraction that you've had to it in your life, right? Like being in an emergency room, dealing with acute physical trauma. And then obviously, as you get into it, some of the underlying, like all the other traumas, big and little, that are so pervasive when people are so culturally pervasive, right? Particularly in the context of the VA. And do you think it's sort of you're in that process of that physician heal thyself phase of life of grappling with it? Well, I feel like this work on myself, this work on oneself, never ends. Now, this memoir I started writing years ago, and it was such a cathartic process as I explored the trauma of my childhood and growing up in an abusive household with a father who was a batterer and working through that as I wrote it, or the end of my marriage, and then like the end of another significant relationship. So much catharsis. I actually thought, you know, through all of my spiritual work with my meditation and yoga, I really thought I was good. It was a little naive. <laughs> I guess it was years ago. I was younger too. But but I thought I was, I was like, I'm good. Now it's ready to write. And that process of writing and excavating those those memories really took me even deeper into healing. So I say all that to say that I feel a lot better now. So so now I use those techniques. Mm-hmm. You know, things are very hard right now. Things in our, our country, we, we lost two warriors of light recently, John Lewis and RBG, and we were battling a pandemic. There's a pandemic of racism. There's so much pain and so much grief acutely at all times that now my process of healing is really helping me. I'm drawing on those tools to navigate the daily traumas. Yeah. No, and and it's it's as you said, it's systemic trauma, it's personal trauma, mm-hmm. then you're in the VA, so you're dealing with right. a different type of systemic trauma that is so right. untreated in this country. I thought that that was such a beautiful scene. When you are talking, I feel like there were a few scenes or a few moments in the book where you sort of end up playing the role of not psychiatrist, but psychologist. And someone's overhears you and is like, are you going to, you should become a psychologist. Like working in acute medicine, where really Western medicine does shine, right? Like that's, that's Western medicine at its finest. But have you thought about, particularly in the context of trauma, transitioning and doing something? I know you wanted to open sort of your complementary medicine center. Like, how do you, do you think about bridging those two? I do, but you know, I will say, I think it's really important for me to 
bring these practices into my work in the in the ER. So that encounter you reference with the patient, I mean, all the, all the names are changed, but Miss Honor, a woman I'm meeting in the psychiatric part of the ER and in the VA and some other hospitals too, the ER is separated just so it's easier to manage. And so she's in the, the psychiatric part where a lot of patients like her are coming in just for a note to say they're clear, like medically they're fine. They can go on to their sober house, their next assignment, just a medical stamp of approval for them to go on to their next phase of care. And she's a young black woman and she was healthy. There was no medical issue. It was the end of my shift. I was just seeing one more patient to help out the night doctor who was going to be overburdened with so many patients waiting to be seen, waiting to be transferred upstairs to their hospital bed. I mean, there's no way for him to manage everything alone. So I said, well, let me just see one more patient. It'll be quick and easy. And it was. But as I was leaving the room, I just felt like there was more to explore. She had mentioned there was a trauma that she was healing from. And I could have just left. But I felt like if I left, I would be complicit in her silencing. And I knew I didn't want to do that. And I I, I had nothing to go on, you know, objectively in her, the records that I had, but I felt it. So I asked her about it. You know, if she, she had mentioned a trauma, if she wanted to, could she share that with me? And she did. And so she went on to say how she had been raped in the military by her colleagues when one supervisor and then a person of a similar rank. And then not only had the military committed this crime against her body, and her spirit. But then they were trying to ruin her her records and career so that they could then take away her livelihood. So we talked about, about that. It, it, I felt it was important for me to say they were wrong. Like, you are right to be angry. What they did to you was wrong. And then we went on to explore her, her own journey to finding a sense of peace and forgiveness and not not condoning not anything about what they did which was barbaric but that within them they were yes tortured beings and some something in them was deeply suffering and just to forgive that part of their essence to free herself so that she could have the life that she deserved and then, you know, what, what, what I, I discuss how what I didn't say to her, because there, it wasn't the time to, to say to her at that point in time, was that there has to be like, more to hold these men in particular accountable, and that they're part of a system that has made that behavior acceptable, that's condoned it and promoted it. And so that's that was why I was recounting this story, because somehow we have to amplify these stories and then take action to change it. Last year, I had the opportunity to list my Montecito guest house on Airbnb. This was part of a special project that Airbnb spearheaded to build connection and to make the world feel a little less lonely. It was such a pleasure to get to know my Airbnb guests over dinner and share my home with them so that they could rest and recharge on their trip. But typically, the beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. 
Being a host on Airbnb is great for those who travel frequently, have extra space, or own a seasonal home. If you've stayed at an Airbnb, you know the unique experience it offers. And now you can share that same experience with others in addition to earning additional income on the side. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. And as someone who sort of operated with a keen understanding sort of from within the VA, do you, is it one of those problems that's so, I think you had talked about, like you, when you raised this idea of creating sort of a more comprehensive complementary trauma center, that they were like, oh, the guy who's been in charge of pain management for 20 years needs to do it, et cetera. Like, is it one of those things that just feels too Sisyphean or do you see there being pathways to help people? And I will say that I, I, I've heard, I've only worked at one location. I've heard there, there are sites that are better than others that have been really progressive and even have great complementary centers up and running and are more supportive of the patients. But then in many ways, yeah, it was, it was going to be very difficult. It would, it, it's like turning a cruise ship. It was going to take time and a lot of change all the way through because of course it comes down to the leadership. So, and, and I'm a firm believer that change is always possible. I don't know if I'm often accused of being optimistic, but I do have hope and I do have faith. And I am also acutely aware that there are, there are times we can affect change within a system. There's always something, there's, you know, even when I work in an, in an emergency department within this paradigm of Western medicine, even taking those two minutes to speak about how someone feels to address their spirit, that's doing a little bit of change right then and there. And then there are times when we have to dismantle systems from outside the structure. Right. So I think it just depends on, we we pick our approach depending on the situation. Yeah, no, I know. And I'm sure it feels completely overwhelming in the process when you see so much pain and acute pain around you. And I love just even the small interventions, like the woman who was taking possession of her granddaughter, I think it was, and you were sort of urging her, reminding her about her meditation practice, right? That she was essentially having, she having sort of a prolonged panic attack. Mm. Yeah, there there are so many times in emergency medicine where, and I, I'm, I'm sure this applies to many fields where, but in the ER specifically, sure, we have someone who comes in with a gunshot wound or heart attack, and there are heroic interventions that need to be made. But often, that's not what we're doing. And that's not the course of action. Yes, in the case you're mentioning. And then even a situation I had where, very tragic, a little baby was was called in as a, a resuscitation. EMS called the concern that the baby had stopped breathing, concern the heart had stopped. And so 911 was called. And the minute the baby is brought in, we knew the baby had passed away. We knew the baby was dead. We worked on that child for far longer than was necessary or or even reasonable, mainly to prove it to the family 
that we had done everything we could do and also to prove it to ourselves because that's that's a really hard situation and you come to find out that the parents had tried really hard to get pregnant they were in their 30s this wonderful couple with a long history with their the OB doctor that they were working with and there were no problems with the pregnancy or delivery perfect follow-up visits for this newborn mm-hmm. and now this no reason no explanation there's nothing we could do to bring the baby back and there was no explanation we could provide the family with and so there are those times when the therapeutic intervention is being honest about the suffering and making space for the grief because that's all there is and then somehow knowing and it's it's impossible to know in that moment if that's your child you've lost or if you've gone through something something similar but somehow knowing from from faith i think that's all that's left that somehow we'll have to get through this together so that's that's often i feel that that's often um a part of care yeah no i agree and I, that the the baby moment i thought and and we've talked about this sort of on the podcast and i'm sure it's top of mind for you but sort of the empathy mm. what is it empathy exhaustion i can't remember there's a te- technical term for it for yeah. doctors and caregivers frontline workers but the fact that and you were just sort of I don't know if you were shocked, but you were you went home that night and cried and just how inured you must because you handle suffering every single day. How do you move that out of your body? And how do you know, like, where are you putting it? And then how do you know that you've actually dealt with it or processed it? And how do you stay tender? And that was one of those moments when I went home and cried where my body had information that wasn't accessible to me until that happened. It triggered in me the grief I had around the childhood I never had, which was Mm. like a small death. The grief I had around, you know, that was... um after my divorce and the story I had of, well, we'll be together and then we'll have a family. And, but then we got divorced. We didn't have a family and like the death of that dream and wanting to provide a child with a happy, loving, healthy childhood that I never had. And so it was a moment where my body was very wise at just letting it out in that moment at a time in my life when when I was a child it, it wasn't safe for me to fully feel it just wasn't there weren't support sy- systems mm-hmm. and I had to survive that made sense when I was switching jobs and graduating and I, I just I had to move I had to start a job there wasn't really time either but then there was time there was wisdom in my body to know that okay now's the time if you will allow it Michelle for you to finally fully deal with this because right now you don't have to just survive you can get beyond this so that is to say that i do think that our 
our bodies can give us clues. And so that was this purging moment for me. And it's not, it's like not a one and done, right? You know, I, I have to be careful a little when we talk about fatigue and trauma fatigue and PTSD and it, it happens a lot, you know, when I mm-hmm. look at the news and process Breonna Taylor being murdered in her bed and then the statement that no one will be held accountable but the one person who damaged drywall, well, we take that seriously and he's going to have to answer for the drywall. That is deeply traumatic. You know, I've, I've been in situations, I wrote about this, an essay in The Cut recently where I was working in the ER, obviously, and there was a patient nobody had signed up for her yet. I mean, she was assigned a nurse, but neither me nor my physician colleague had signed up for her yet. She was a young black woman, and I heard, like, chaos. The, the ER was already loud, monitors, babies screaming, people complaining about almost anything. And she was pacing on the phone. She was kind of loud on her phone. But then ultimately she went to her room. I knew that she was there for some kind of head trauma. Someone had assaulted her and she wanted to file a police report. So the nurse called the police for her. Next thing I knew, I I heard someone screaming, get out, get out of here. I don't want you here. And it kind of sounded like her, but I was confused because she was in the ER alone. And I asked, what is going on? And nobody said anything. And I asked again, what's happening? And then her nurse said, oh, the police are there. And then just turned around. And I said, well, do you want to help her? Because she's in distress. Nobody did anything. I rushed to the room and she's pressed up like against the wall, the furthest she could be in that, in, in those quarters. And the police officer is near the door and he looks very aggressive. And first that's, that's directed at her and then it's directed at me. And I ask him to leave like repeatedly, repeatedly. He finally does leave. And then she just dissolves into tears and goes on to tell me how she was just trying to make a police report because she was attacked and how she's tired of him always coming around. He harasses them in the neighborhood and now he's there and she's filed complaints and she didn't know he was going to be the one to be there and they have to take this seriously. So I took care of her and I told her I wasn't going to let him come back because I'm her doctor and I'm there to take care of her and we can call someone else from the police department and I can let them know what happened. And then when I leave the room, my colleague tells me, oh, he said something about how he's going to come back and arrest you. He's getting his supervisor and they're going to arrest you. And so that was that. Like she, I was the only black provider there, like between like my physician colleague or like not, not even any of the nurses were black or brown. And it was really disheartening to me that no one thought it important to help her when she was calling for help. And then it was equally disheartening to me that no one verbalized any concern about my welfare either. He did come back with his supervisor and I, I assumed when he, when he walked in, it was a tall, dark black man in dark suit uniform. And he was like, is Dr. Harper here? And then 
I motioned over to him because I was like, well, if he's going to come get me and take me away in handcuffs, it'll be in front of everyone in the camera. So there's tape. And when he looked at me, his whole countenance mm-hmm. just softened. And he walked over to me and said, well, are you, you're taking care of, of this patient? Are you done with her? And I told him we're not. We, I still have to do CAT scans and reevaluate her. And he said, well, we don't want to be in your way and we'll leave. And I'll just let her know. She can file a report later. And then he, in front of everyone and the two officers who summoned him there, he shook my hand mm-hmm. and said, thank you, doctor. And then he left. And it was really, it was really important to me that in that moment, the courage he displayed and like between the two of us, because of our actions, at least that hour, nobody was shot, nobody was killed, nobody was raped, nobody was dragged out in handcuffs or mm. suffocated on the ground. And so these are the moments, yes, it is so depleting, all of it, but I always turn my, my grief, my pain, my suffering into action. So like those are the moments and those the potential for change and of course justice is more than than help, like doing one good thing for one person one day it's so much more than that but it is those moments and the possibility of greater change that rejuvenates me and that makes it possible for me to yeah. keep going every day and i also you know that story that you told i think you called her lauren she was your med student and yeah, I'm yeah. assuming, I can't remember if you said, the story was that, that a man had, sw- they presumed or believed that he had swallowed drugs, right? And then mm-hmm. they brought him. Yes. They, was he arrested or were they, can you arrest someone? Okay. And then they wanted, they were wanted you to yes. force an exam on him, right? And you mm-hmm. said, no, which she, which is the law. <laughs> And, right. was, and you were you were just commenting and how frequently doctors will force exams when directed by the police just because they do they not know the law or it is interesting and I don't know exactly why because we all get the same education in in, in medical school and then in residency so I know that it's a it's a complicated relationship between. ER doctors and the police. And and I've said myself, like I I trained in the South Bronx and there was a police precinct in the hospital. And during my time there, my interactions with the police were really positive and helpful. And we were a team and we were all first responders. So we typically think of ourselves as a team until and unless we're not. And we can have conflicting goals. And especially if you're if unfortunately, anytime a colleague, a police or physician or whoever, uh, is behaving in a way that is unethical, unprofessional, or illegal, that's that's when the conflict arises. And then you know I have to ask myself, what is my duty to? And my duty first and foremost, well, my duty first and foremost is to myself, and that is it's important for me to behave with integrity at all times, inside or outside the ER. And that means then that. I will do what is right by the patient. And that is also, in that case, what was legal. And I think that that was the right thing also for the police because apparently they needed a reminder of the law yeah, and ethical behavior. And then it sucks to be the person who's holding the standard, right? Or the standard bearer 
when that should not fall on you, which I'm sorry about that. Going back to sort of like, where does the anger go? Like, how do you transmute it? I will say, okay, so there's, of course, there's a physical, there, there's the, what I call the, the, the smaller tools. The physical practice of mm-hmm. yoga for me is huge. And for me, that is a moving meditation where my body physically releases tension and pain and becomes more flexible and, and limber. And I mean that not just physically, but also emotionally, there's more resilience that comes to me from the physical asana. And then meditation and my spiritual teachers, I have to tap into people who are much more wise than me. Like every, every day when I'm going into work, I listen to mm. Eckhart Tolle audiobook. And then drawing from ancestral wisdom, like Audre Lorde, for example. So there's that. But, but then I will always come back to the action, like the, which I suppose is another form of meditation. My commitment to action and being part of positive change in society. You know, one of the big reasons I wrote this book was to, I guess my, my mission statement for the book was to demonstrate our interconnectedness as human beings. And I really believe that in making the choice, because it really is a choice to work on ourselves and heal ourselves, that we can then be part of a support system and structure to help other people on their journeys to healing, should they choose it, because again, it's a choice. And in doing that, we can then uplift society. So because that's my mission statement for the book and for my life that mm. transmutes yeah all pain and i guess sort of to read to you if you don't mind this is a short passage after colin breaks up you and colin the police officer mm-hmm. break up where you talk about sort of his trauma reenactment yeah. you write strange how police mm-hmm. officers frequently find the the wackadoos I suppose it's just like ER physicians, psychiatrists, social workers, and all of us in the helping field. We all nurse that same Achilles heel of cleaving to the damaged. What a critical life lesson to learn to distinguish enabling from helping, codependence from love, attachment to reenacting the grief of childhood loss from allowing for the sweetness of self-determination. So do you feel like every, like your sort of, your work is the crucible of (laughs) that every day? Yes, that was, yes, that was a huge breakthrough for me. Now, yeah, it takes a lot of courage, though, to to keep standing up and to keep reminding myself of that knowledge and then putting it into action. That That requires a tremendous amount of courage, but still so liberating. And I always come back to that. And it mm. always feels good to come back to that. What do you think is next for you? Like when you contemplate your path as a as sort of a spiritually grounded ER doctor, like what do you what do you want to do? Ooh. There's so much I want to do. So this is a very interesting moment for me because when I wrote this book, I had no idea what would 
happen next or that it would do well or that more than 100 people would read it. I mean, I just had no idea. I didn't think it through. And if I had even started to think it through, I wouldn't even know where to begin because my training was medicine. So now I'm in this position with this book and my intentions, and I have no idea what's next. Quite literally, for the first time in my life, I don't have a blueprint, like even like even less so <laughs> than when this book ended. I just, I don't, don't really have a blueprint. I mean, yes, there's other projects I want to work on. I'm a little superstitious yeah, though also. Yeah, yeah. I never talk about something until it's done. So like, I know. So like, even though there are discussions about maybe other projects or like TV, I can't talk about anything till it's done. But do I want to do more writing? And I've written a couple essays since then. But in terms of books and other essays, yes. Do I, I feel that I have a, um, I think in a past lifetime, I must have been an artist because, because I really mm. resonate with having the soul of an artist and art museums are my temple. And pre-pandemic, that's, I would spend so much free time in art museums and I can't wait to go back to them. So the thought of any kind of creative collaboration moving forward is extremely appealing to me. So, so I know it will happen. I don't know the details of how these projects will unfold yet. I respect that and I won't pry. I'm just curious because it's, you know, there seems to be sort of this passion, this passion you have many passions, I think, when it comes to healing. So I'm just curious if there's one that's calling to you most acutely, no pun intended. But like, is there, you know, when you think about it, is it vets? Is it women? Is it marginalized people? Who do you want to help? Clinically, for my clinical practice, my heart and soul always take me to communities that are predominantly black and brown Mm -hmm. and financially under-resourced. That's where I am called to practice clinically and my heart sings when I do. And then there's this other part of the healing work. You know, when it comes to my book or speaking, I I love interacting with different groups. I mean, whenever it's people of color and women that resonates especially, or and people who want to do work to eliminate structural bigotry, whoever they are, because that's hard work. And whoever's involved in that work typically feels like a marginalized person. There is a young man I heard from in Brazil, queer, and was relating to me how he had been depressed most of his life. He's only in his 20s. But when he was a child, I believe it was eight years old, mm. his father was killed by the police and he's never felt supported in his life for many different reasons and didn't have anyone to go to. And he's been suicidal off and on for, all, for his youth, his teenage years. And now as a young adult, he was on medication, didn't really help him. And then he made a a decision. Something just opened up inside of him. And he said, I deserve to be happy. And what helped him was that realization. And then he turned to yoga and meditation. 
he found my book and that's why he reached out to me and he reached out to me to say like I, I'm going to keep this book with me because at a time so many times when I, I can't find support and I had to not only did I not have support but then I had to get rid of the toxic influences in my life this book and these stories give me comfort and at least I know there are people out there going through similar challenges and also people that care. So when I heard from him, I had to get back to him and his note really made me cry. And that really is the whole reason I wanted to discuss these stories because these connections to me, it's how we heal. It's how we survive. It's how we thrive. Yeah. No, and I think I'm sure so many of us are fearful. You know, you don't want to go to the ER, right? The ER typically, it denotes that you're having one of the worst days, most likely of your life. I mean, not always, obviously. But I, I just think it's powerful to have written a book from its trenches. And I can only imagine how many people were touched and inspired and moved. And obviously, you're an incredible role model. So Michelle, what's been the most meaningful feedback since the book has come out? I wrote this, I mean, often, and thank goodness some of this is changing, the shame around trauma. The Me Too movement has helped this. But you know, depending, it's still early, though, there still is a lot of shaming. There's still so much courage it takes to acknowledge one's trauma to oneself because part of abuse, whether it's I don't know, childhood abuse or workplace harassment, a large part of it is the, the silencing as well. So I, I specifically wanted to speak about some of my experiences to remove to be part to be part of the movement to remove the stigma and shame because I, I think it's freeing of oneself to do that but then it also makes it easier to access yeah. help and services if we're willing to discuss it no absolutely as you said when we're silenced with people who we know are struggling there is a complicitness to that that's not okay particularly in these days And thank you for the work you do. It can't be easy at all in any way. And yet, as we know, it's so essential. Thanks for tuning into my chat with Dr. Michelle Harper. For more from Dr. Harper, pick up a copy of her book, The Beauty and Breaking. I can't recommend it enough. That's it for today's episode. If you have a chance, please rate and review. Hit subscribe to keep up with new episodes and pass it along to a friend. Thanks again for joining. I hope you'll come back for more. And in the meantime, you can check out goop.com slash the podcast.